Let's hear the word of the Lord from the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 1. And I'm going to read verses 68 down through 79. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for He has visited and redeemed His people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham. So grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days and you child will be called the prophet of the most high for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. There's a wonderful passage in the book of Isaiah, chapter 35, in which the prophet describes this barren and arid wilderness that's suddenly transformed into a beautiful, thriving landscape through an inrush of water. Here is words from verses 6 and 7. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. We all know what it is to be thirsty and feel dried out. And last week is... Harlan told us many people at the turn of the first century were worried that the word of the Lord had dried up. If there were any prophets, if there were any living voices crying in the street, thus saith the name of the Lord, we don't know about them. And in Zechariah's own life, the spoken word had run dry. For nine long months, the only sound coming out of his mouth was the sound of his own breath. Now, if we believe that all things work for good for those who love God, we can believe it was for his own good and maybe for the good of his wife. But I imagine at times he was frustrated losing that ability to communicate verbally. And then his son is born. And he looks at his child, and his tongue, as they say, is loosed. And Luke says in verse 50, sorry, 67, which I didn't read, Zechariah is filled with the Holy Spirit. And just like those waters in Isaiah streaming into that desert landscape, the word of the Lord starts streaming from Zechariah's mouth. So we can see the tradition that the 400-year period of silence between the Old Testament 
writings in the beginning of the New Testament era was not really broken by the cries of the infant Christ in the manger. Sorry, Chris Tomlin. I know we sang the song Emmanuel just this morning. And please don't think I'm advocating we remove the song from the worship catalog. And I certainly don't want to turn anyone into the kind of Christian that pounces on people when they make a minor mistake. Like, have you ever been in a Bible study and you've had the unfortunate um, experience of saying you like the story where Jonah is swallowed by a giant whale? Somebody is going to jump up, get in your face, look at you like you are the Antichrist, and they're going to say, no. He was swallowed by a giant fish. And their tone makes you certain you better repent and not make that mistake again. Please don't be that person. It's a pretty harmless tradition. It's like the three wise men. Many of us know Matthew doesn't actually tell us how many wise men there were. He tells us how many gifts they were. But we ought to be careful not to derive our theological convictions from popular Christian culture. We do need to be a little bit careful. Now the content of Zechariah's prophecy, just like Mary's song looked at last week, is really rich with Old Testament themes, especially the theme of covenant and covenantal theology. So by way of reminder, or in case you're not familiar, a covenant is more or less a compact or an agreement between two parties. And I once heard someone say that in a biblical context, you could think of covenant as a relationship based on promise. So you have God, usually, making a promise to a person or a group of people, and they enter into a relationship based on that promise, a relationship of mutual trust binding them together. And Zechariah, and there are many covenants in the Old Testament, many covenants. Zechariah mentions two by name. In verse 69, and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Here we have a reference to the Davidic covenant. Now, last week, Harlan made reference to the C.S. Lewis classic, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. I'm going to lower the sophistication bar down just a little bit this morning, as is my custom. And we're going to talk about the great gospel movie, Ferdinand the Bull. I watch a lot of cartoons. I've got kids six, four, and two. And... In the movie, Ferdinand gets into a fight with Valiente, these two bulls going at it. And Ferdinand is sort of unwillingly entered into this contest. But they fight each other, and one of Valiente's horns is broken off. And so you see the horn break off and fall to the ground, and you know that bull is done. (laughs) That horn is broken. He has no more power. He has no more strength. When we see that word horn... In the Bible, oftentimes the horn is meant to be a symbol of power and strength. A horn of salvation is someone who is mighty to save. Someone who has the power to save. And when he talks about the house of David, he's talking about the bloodline of David, right? This is a descendant of David. And the Davidic covenant, which is recorded... In 2 Samuel chapter 7, but you can find it referenced in other places as well. Psalm 89, Psalm 132. 
God promises David that one of his descendants will be the final king of Israel, whose throne will be established forever. The Messiah. The Messiah will come from David's line. And in the New Testament, we see the phrase, son of David, which, by the way, is not always used in reference to Christ. Here's something interesting. If you go to the book of Matthew chapter 1, we're going to look at a story about the angel visiting Joseph. Not really look at the story, but just read a verse from Matthew chapter 1. This is verse 20. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him, Joseph, in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And so, son of David in this context, when Joseph is called son of David, we're just meant to understand, or sorry, Joseph comes from David's bloodline. But jump to Matthew chapter 21. And in Matthew chapter 21, verse 9, Jesus is entering into the city of Jerusalem on a donkey. And Matthew tells us the crowds went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. Now, if you're an English teacher, you might have noticed there's a subtle grammatical difference between those two phrases. I don't know if anyone caught it. But in Matthew chapter 1, son is lowercase. In Matthew chapter 21, son is uppercase. And if I'm not mistaken, this convention was adopted by the translators because they want us to understand that in this context, Matthew chapter 21, they're not just saying Jesus is a son of David. He is the son of David. What they're saying is, this is the Messiah. This is the one God promised. God is fulfilling the covenant he made with David. The Messiah has come, but it's not just the covenant with David that's being fulfilled here, because hundreds of years before David was even born... God made a covenant with Abraham. And Zechariah talks about the promise he made to our father Abraham. And Abraham actually was on the receiving end of several promises from God. God promised him land. He promised him descendants. That one took a little while to fulfill. Abraham was a hundred years old when he finally got that descendant. But it came... I once heard someone say that God is always almost too late, (laughs) but never quite too late, right? He always comes in, but he seems to like that suspense. I don't know why. And he also promises Abraham, this is key, that all the nations of the world will be blessed through him. So in these covenants, we can see God acting in human history to bring about salvation, to bring about redemption. But what kind of salvation is God coming to bring? This is interesting. Commentators have noticed, if you look at Zechariah's prophecy, if you look at the first half, I'll say, the kind of salvation he seems to be talking about would be a social-political kind of salvation. 
Look at the language that he uses, for example, in verse 74, that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear. Now, if you know anything about the Old Testament, when you look at those words, your mind is going to go straight to the Exodus, right? The Exodus story, when the people were in bondage, they were in slavery under the king of Egypt, Pharaoh, and God... He didn't really deal with their sin in that story, right? His people's sin. What he did was he rescued them from the house of bondage and he set them up in the wilderness as his free people. And we need to remember that many Jews in the first century, so almost certain Zechariah, Mary, Elizabeth, the disciples later on, they expected Jesus to do that. When he's entering into Jerusalem, we looked at Matthew chapter 21. They in all likelihood expected that this was it. He was going to come into Jerusalem. He was going to assume power there. And then he was going to deliver them from the oppression and tyranny of the Roman Empire. That was their expectation. And it really helps if we read the Gospels in that light. It really puts it into context for us. That's what they thought was going to happen. Now we know those expectations would be frustrated because Israel crucified her own Messiah. But it doesn't take a very wise person to understand that a realignment of political power does not serve our deepest needs. And as Zechariah continues... To prophesy, he enters into this, I would call, deeper, wider, more meaningful definition of salvation. Because the true tyrants, and this is just as true today as it was back then, the true oppressors are sin and death. They need to be dealt with. And so Zechariah says about his son John, You will be called the prophet of the Most High, For you will go before the Lord to prepare His ways, to give knowledge of salvation to people in the forgiveness of their sins. And in the last two verses, he enters into this really powerful contrast between the light and the darkness. And it's obvious he's speaking in full-blown spiritual language. When he's talking about light, or when he's talking about the sunrise, we know he's not talking about natural sunlight. And when he's talking about those who sit in darkness, and in the shadow of death, we know he's not talking about people who haven't paid their power bill, right? He's talking about these spiritual realities that need to be dealt with, and... There's more than one reason why someone might be sitting in the darkness, I would argue. If you look in the Gospel of John, which is right next to Luke, chapter 3, the evangelist tells us something very interesting in chapter 3, verse 19. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. So these people, the darkness is their refuge. They are in darkness because they don't want 
their deeds to be exposed. And they don't want to be exposed. The light for them would be an intruder. The light for them would be an unwelcome enemy. The darkness is their refuge. The darkness is what allows them to live the lie that they want to live. And John says, this is the condemnation, that they love the darkness. And though we are all of us to some degree drawn to the darkness, we are all of us to some degree prone to wander, not everyone who sits in darkness is at home in the darkness. Some people are in darkness because they don't know the way out. And I heard a story from a missionary. This was several years ago, so I'm really not going to be able to give you much detail, but I trust I'm being faithful to the core of the story. There's a missionary presenting the gospel to a group of people who have never heard the gospel message. So for them, good news is actually news. And she's preaching to them, and there's a woman standing off by herself, listening And let's just say um, this individual was someone who had made some really grievous mistakes in her life. In other words, she knew that she was a sinner. And this is something that I think we as a church need to remember every once in a while. When it comes to moral knowledge, moral knowledge is not the exclusive property of the church. Wherever you're born, whenever you're born, you're going to have access to basic ideas of right and wrong, good and evil. And some people who have never heard the name of Jesus Christ nonetheless know they are a sinner. Now, some people don't listen to the voice of conscience, obviously, even though I'm suggesting that most or nearly everyone has a conscience. Some people ignore the voice of conscience, and sometimes they become quite successful uh, according to the world's standards of success. But some people can't ignore it. And they know that they've done wrong. And so this lady comes up to the missionary after she's done. And she asks her a very simple question. Is that really true? Because think about this for a moment. I know, if I know that I am a sinner, if I know my deeds are evil, might I not assume that if there is a good God, that He's not going to want to have anything to do with me? That seems reasonable. If I know what I am and what I've done, and as a righteous Lord who loves righteousness, it would be so easy for me to come to the conclusion He's not going to want anything to do with me. He's not going to love me because I am unclean. He's not going to want to touch me. And when we understand this, we understand the beauty of what Zechariah writes or says, what Luke records when he says, to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to those that are swallowed up by shame and guilt and despair because they don't know the way out, to them a light has come. And that light is the knowledge of a salvation that's not based upon what we deserve, but based upon what we need. Is that true? That this righteous Lord who loves righteousness, who created the world, looked at the miserable state of His sinful creatures that rebelled against them, 
and in his mercy reached out to them in love and offered them the free gift of deliverance through faith in Jesus Christ. Is that true? Yes! That is true. That is the truth. Because where there's light, there's a path for those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death. A path to guide our feet into the way of peace. Let's pray. Um, gracious Lord, we, uh, we thank you for giving us the opportunity to come here in your house of prayer, in your house of worship, to lift up your name, to read your scriptures, and to turn our minds to you. We pray that your Holy Spirit will move in our minds and move in our hearts to guide us into the lives you would have us to lead and that we would trust in your forgiveness and in your tender mercy. In Jesus' name, amen.